My name is Randall Einhorn. You're listening to Cinepod. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Good afternoon. <laughs> good afternoon, good evening and good night. <laughs> it's always afternoon somewhere, isn't it? How's it going? It's going pretty well. For those of you who don't listen to the show all that often or have never heard before, uh, my name is Ilya Friedman. I run a camera shop in Hollywood called Hot Rod Cameras. And uh, I also do this podcast when I'm not doing camera shop things. I, <laughs> I, I used to be a cameraman, worked for a camera manufacturer, worked on the team that invented the 4K digital cinema camera way back when. Uh, ben, tell everyone who you are. Uh, I'm a multi-hyphenate, triple threat, Ben Rock. I, I direct. Man's man, I, ladies uh, man, man about town. I don't know about any of those three, but uh, man about the valley. I'm a director, uh, sometimes writer, frequent editor, and uh, you can learn everything you ever wanted to know about me at benrock.com. And uh, you'll find out my history with uh, independent films and stuff I've directed, stuff I've worked on. Blah, bitty, blah, bitty, blah. <laughs> Who do we have on the show today? Oh, man. We are extremely fortunate to have Randall Einhorn on the show. Mm, he is yes. a director. He's a former cinematographer, a producer. He's been uh, around a long time. And of course, perhaps most famous for his work, well, currently on Abbott Elementary, but also on yep. Parks and Rec and The Office. Yes. I would say someone who created a very distinctive style that has been ripped off by a bazillion people. Including himself. He keeps reinventing yeah. it along the way, which, you know, I'm, I'm in love with that style. I, I love it. So I'm really enjoying Abbott Elementary right now, which season three now paused due to the writer's strike. Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, we could talk about the writer's strike a lot, but I actually feel like there wasn't any real strike news this week. So let's not talk about that. Let's do a close focus about something else. Let's talk about new technology and stuff that's coming down the pike. A close focus that I dare say will either appear prophetic or age horribly in years to come. All right, I'm ready for that. And now, close focus. Shall we talk about Apple's new VR headset? <laughs> the Apple Vision Pro that was announced uh, last week at the Worldwide Developers Conference. And uh, this one was kind of anticipated because, you know, Apple doesn't often release a brand new product that's like a product from top to bottom, a whole new thing. And the Vision Pro is either going to revolutionize computing as we know it, or it is going to fizzle. And I can see powerful arguments for both because VR so far has been, let's just call it niche. It's been a niche thing. There are people who love VR, but it's never really crossed into the mainstream. And Apple, in releasing the Vision Pro headset with a $3,500 price tag, it's not exactly going to be a mass market product, right? It's going to be something for people who specialize in something that would use this or rich people who want to play around with a weird toy. What is it going to be? Now, it's for the people who I, get front row seats at concerts who can just, you know, instead of applauding, just jangle their jewelry about. It's a <laughs> And the other thing to say about it is you can only imagine how much better like version two and version three will be. And if you need any more reminder of that, think of the first version of the iPhone. I don't really feel like the iPhone came into its own until version four, but it was the industry leader in smartphones all the way up to that uh, iPad. The first iPad was thick. It was weird. The battery life wasn't great, but it was still like, Okay, nothing like that existed, so it was pretty cool. The Vision Pro thing, so, you know, there's some things to note about it. One is, like, when you see pictures of it, it almost looks like ski goggles, like someone's mm. wearing ski goggles and you yep. see their eyes through it, but mm -hmm. you're not seeing their eyes through it. Do you know what you're seeing? Mm, I'm going to say fake eyes. You're seeing an OLED display of their actual eyes. Oh, so gotcha. So a little filming. camera shooting the eyes and then showing it to everyone else so they can yeah. see where you were looking. Correct. It. Okay. And uh, each of the monitors inside, so each eye is more than 4K resolution. And the uh, reports that I have heard, and I've watched a bunch of them, are saying that it's like you can't see individual pixels. I'm, part of me is like, I'll be the judge of that when I put one of these on my noggin. But every VR headset I've ever seen, like... I immediately get ensorcelled by the pixels and I start just looking at pixels and nothing else. And so it's interesting to think about that. It has six microphones, 12 cameras and five sensors that monitor your hand gestures. So it's all gestural. There are no 
like hand parts that you need to hold. It's tracking your hands. So trying to be a minority report sort of interface type of thing where you just kind of wave your hands around. That's what they're saying. And they're referring to it. They're not calling it. I mean, it is an AR and a VR headset, but they're calling it really uh, spatial computing because it's basically creating computer screens in 3D space that you can interact with and look at. And I mean, I think that there's enormous novelty to that. I wonder about things like eye strain. I wonder how many hours I want to wear this freaking thing on my face. I think VR is cool for gaming. And not only have I seen stuff done in VR, but we tried to do an episode of 20 Seconds to Live in VR. And I found producing video for VR was infuriating. Like it just, it, it was no fun. All right. Well, let, let me be the first then. I'm just going to come right out. Knowing only what you've told me about the Apple Vision Pro, uh, mm. I'm going to call it a flop right now. I was going to say flop, and I, I can tell you that uh, Microsoft, Google, basically anyone who had a VR development team in uh, Silicon Valley recently pretty much had huge layoffs, a bunch, a bunch of layoffs. Those were, you know, Microsoft, a lot of VR people have been uh, let go, and I certainly don't see demand for it. Even in talking to the youth, who it seems like should be all about it, there's not a lot of demand for VR. And if well, there isn't it's, demand it's, it's for not it, then... it's not priced for 12 year olds to run out and buy one. Even it's if the 12 year old could afford it, though, I got to say, I don't think most people want the experience of wearing goggles. Uh, I don't think wearing ski goggles or a paintball mask is a good time for people. I think that people want, if anything, especially if they wear glasses, they want to take the glasses off their face. They don't want to put more glasses on. So I think that there's a, a pretty major disconnect right there and that you have to have something so compelling and so over the top great to encourage people to add some extra encumbrance to their being. And I don't think that any sort of app that the Vision Pro has is going to be that killer, which encourages people that I'm going to wear this for eight hours a day or even 30 well, minutes a day. I mean, this, this is part of their strategy, clearly, because they're announcing this here in June the thing doesn't come out until next year. So uh, developers are going to be working on those killer apps. Mm. And I would like to say, much like anyone who ever mocked James Cameron for making a second Avatar, whatever, 13 years after the first one, don't ever underestimate James Cameron. Also, don't ever underestimate Apple. I feel like when Apple came out with the iPhone, there were a bunch of smartphones out there, including a very popular one called the BlackBerry, which is now basically dead and buried. But Palm had their uh, Treo, and there were all these personal digital assistants and stuff like that. iPhone came in, wiped them all out. So I have felt for a long time that VR headsets were a little bit of a solution in search of a problem. But I also think that Apple, what Apple does well and what they always have done well is understanding a design aesthetic, understanding a user experience and creating something that nobody else could and then was immediately copied by everyone else. That's, that's what they do. So I will be interested to see what it is used for. If there is a killer app, I'm betting that like, you know, they already have a partnership with Disney. So Disney's already going to be making content for this thing. I'm sure that there are going to be some intense games on there. Imagine if you could hook it up to your drone, you know, and when and you could use it for flying a drone and you could get way more precision, but you could also see exactly what you were getting while you were flying it in real time. I see a lot of high-end professional uses like that. I could see surgeons using it. I could see surgical programs using it where people are learning how to do surgery and getting a very realistic idea in a way that no VR headset's ever been able to accomplish. And we've had, correctly, you, you know, you're right, we had Google Glass, which was over 10 years ago. We had uh, the Microsoft HoloLens, which actually a really good friend of mine was one of the developers on. We have uh, Facebook, whatever the hell that was, and also, you know, the entire metaverse that Facebook was supposed to be rolling out. I feel like a lot of these things have missed the point of what people want it for. And I know that it's a simple messaging thing, but Apple talking about this as spatial computing and not being like, here's a VR headset for blah, 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 but spatial computing. I think consider that in your prognosis of this being DOA, consider that there might be uses of spatial computing that we have never thought of before. And Apple is good at finding those markets. You know, you, you can point to so many things. Okay, uh, going to Apple's official website, the first thing that they have on here is they uh, say, welcome to spatial computing. And then they say that you can blend your content with the physical space, and then you can do things in ways you never thought possible before. But the first real thing that they put up here as like a feature like it says, free your desktop and your apps will follow. And the next thing is the ultimate theater wherever you are. 
And I don't buy that. I don't buy that people are going to want to watch their Apple TV Plus or, you know, the latest Hollywood film inside this headset. I just I don't see it. I appreciate that you are the optimist here, but I'm definitely going to take the pessimistic view. And so far, I have been right 100% of the time with all the previous VR headsets, which are now either defunct or on life support. So uh, I don't see this being the thing to, to change it. I haven't tried it. I don't know. I only know what we've talked about and now being on the website in the last you know, one minute, but I remain extremely skeptical. And I think that the price is actually part of it because they ultimately Apple is a consumer company. They make products for consumers. That is, that is really what they also make professional stuff. Like they make a Mac pro that is so it's like $7,000. They make very, very expensive stuff. But ultimately I, I believe that the stuff that they're building is for the consumer and for the home user and for the professional who is a creative professional. They're not really the B2B. They're not exactly building like, you know, a bare bones system to sell to another company for an enterprise level thing. It's all about those consumers. And when you say consumer, really, the sort of the word that's not usually mentioned in front of it is uninformed consumer. But really, their business is based around the people who need to go in the Apple store because they don't know how to reset their phone or don't remember their password password or don't remember anything else. That is their bread and butter. Those are the people who keep the lights on for them. I don't think that they are really building this for the, you know, surgeons and training. It could, I could be wrong here. And that would be an incredible use of the product, but it's the same sort of thing as like Segway. Segway didn't revolutionize transportation. It became very, very uh, practical for specific niche sorts of things. It just wasn't the the thing for everyone. And mall yeah, cops. Exactly. Yeah. I say we put this one in the vault. Okay. We'll see. And maybe we revisit this. And and you know what, man? I'm happy. You know, whenever I say something uh, definitive that turns out to be completely wrong, I'm happy to fess up and own that I was wrong. I'm, I'm not a psychic because no one is a psychic. What? But uh, I think that I just have a lot of faith that Apple, Apple is often onto something and there aren't that many Apple products that I can think of. I mean, there was like the Newton is probably the most famous flop, but you can also chart a direct pathway between the Newton and the and the uh, iPhone. Well, uh, uh, as, as much as you're an optimist on Apple, uh, I am a, a skeptic on this one. I'm a skeptic on VR. I'm a skeptic on their headset. So, so there you go. All right. I'm skeptical. Well, maybe uh, when I'm sure that you'll get one of these in your shop or one will somehow end up there and we can both test it out. That's very likely. All right, so why don't we get to the interview with Randall Einhorn? Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Randall Einhorn, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. My pleasure. Hey, it's been ages since we last talked. I met you right at the very beginning, I would say, of your uh, big career change. I, I met you back on NASCAR. If you uh, remember way back when, congratulations on all your success. We haven't talked in ages, but I've been following your your career with a lot of interest. I'm I'm so delighted to see that the trajectory your path has gone. Well, thank you, thank you. Nice to see you again. So let's talk about Abbott Elementary. I mean, I feel like that you know that's the most topical thing right now. You guys are winning a bunch of awards, getting nominated for tons of awards. It's a big hit show. It's a lot of fun to watch. Is it as much fun to produce, or is this a is this a tough show? Is this a tough show to make? It it is shamefully so much fun to do. We have an absolute blast. Everybody's cool. It just all works. And that was from the pilot onwards. Like as soon as I met Quinta, I'm like, oh, I really want to do this pilot. And from day one on the pilot, yeah, there's, it's a pilot. So there's a lot to figure out. There's a lot to explore and figure out what the show is, but it, it just, it all spoke to us so clearly of what the show is. Quinta, absolutely knew exactly what she wanted the show to be. And we were in lockstep from day one. It all felt so good right from the very start. It, there is, there are challenges. I mean, we're working with kids. And absolutely. Kids, the kids in a pandemic, I'm assuming too, because you know, uh, we, yeah. Yep. Shooting the pilot was like, you put all these kids together in a room during a pandemic and these kids, many of them hadn't been to school in a year. They hadn't seen their friends in a year. All, most of them had never been on a television show. So you've got COVID. The kids are all together. They're excited about being together. They're excited about being in a classroom. They're excited about being on a, on a TV show. So it was quite... Um, a barrel of monkeys? Yeah, it was just just absolute. But, but they were all so, so cool and so well-behaved. They, you know, 
they were having a good time and we kind of fed off of that. And I think that's part of why comedy is feeding off each other and it being a good place to be, it being a happy place to be. And that's something we really try to keep. We try to keep it happy, which even, you know, for the kids, because they're going to be their best, just like all actors are going to be their best when they're, they're having fun. So we stress that we're going to have a good time every day. Yeah. And I will tell you that uh, the kids are not necessarily just window dressing in this show, too. It's like, you know, they're very real and very present in a lot of the scenes. That's a conscious effort on your part to really make it feel like a school to really include the kids and in, in what's going on. Yeah, it certainly is. It, I often say about the kids is they make everything harder and everything better. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. From the early days of uh, this project coming together, was it always going to be the mockumentary style or was that sort of a, an addition that happened in, during the development process? Uh, how did the style of the show come around? Uh, Quinta's a huge fan of The Office and, and she's a student of comedy. So I think that the reason they were talking to me to begin with is from the office. Yeah, well, that is very much your, your wheelhouse. You, yeah. are, if, if anyone, know that style intimately. And of course, for our listeners, I, I'll do the quick background here. I think you shot and definitely directed probably more episodes than anyone of, of The Office. And you've carried that torch and that style onto uh, many other shows, Parks and Rec and, and stuff like that. And in my personal opinion, it's an extra element to the comedy. You give this almost self-reflexive quality as the production is going on, as it seems like you're watching a production going on, that allows all of the characters to potentially give a wink, a nod, a nudge, or reference what's going on in a way to, to let their emotions or feelings or, or innermost dialogue or monologue out to the camera. I have a feeling that you must have been the pioneer of a lot of this since you started off shooting The Office. I mean, talk about this style and how this style has become a cultural phenomenon. I know it existed to a certain extent in the, the British office, but I got to say, you know, the British office and the American office, not the same show, very much done in, in different ways. So is this uh, something you, you, you delve into uh, with the scrutiny? Certainly. You know, it's something like I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about as we're doing it and certainly doing it on the office. Like the, the British office, they would rehearse it and they would rehearse all the camera moves and everything for a week before, before they start shooting. And we just shoot it. We just shoot what happens. And that really comes from a, a documentary, you know, cinema verite style documentary background that I have is I just observe what happens and react to it. And that style, I try to infuse in the mockumentary and, and also get our camera operators to, to have that type of autonomy. Just shoot what happens. Yes, you know what's going to happen, but don't make it look like you know what's going to happen. And that's tricky every single time, you know. On the office, I would pull my own focus and my own iris. Mm. So I would operate the lens. I didn't use the servo quite often, so I would, be, I would have one hand on the zoom, you know, one finger on the focus and one on the iris possibly. And on Abbott Elementary, I wanted these people to look like heroes because I think they are, you know, teachers are, are, so I wanted it to look better. So we're shooting it on Aries and we're using uh, Optimo Zooms. It's a prettier look and we're certainly making it look a lot warmer and um, a more inviting place to look, like the office, like the office kind of looked like a there's top lights and it looked like a place you're there from nine to five, whereas it's not as inviting. The people are what's inviting there, mm. but uh, we wanted the Abbott Elementary to look more inviting. So it's a lot of wood and warm tones and a nice warm light coming in from those massive windows. Certainly, I understand that Scranton is supposed to have a certain vibe, even if it's Van Nuys. But, you know, it's a much more modern look, you know, for Philadelphia and Philadelphia. You know, we're both talking about places in Pennsylvania, but they feel, you know, a million miles from each other, even though they're yeah. not. They're very different looks. And you're right. You know, the, the hero aspect, it, it feels very cinematic when you're watching Abbott Elementary. I'd say everything feels like a longer end of the lens almost. It feels like you're really adding, you know, some beauty in there where the office was very much like, you know, this is more uh, gritty people. PBS style of feel. And uh, I know that stuff is very conscious and you guys go through a lot of work to test and figure out the look of this. But I think ultimately the look of the show has to serve the theme of the show. It has to serve what's going on on the camera. What's your feeling about the mismatch of that? And do you ever sometimes tone it down or go the other way and say, you know what, this is looking too clean or this is looking too gritty. We got to change the style to match more what's what's happening. Yeah, we're certainly very conscious to always, you know, dirty the frame up and make, make things look caught. 
So like on the office, I suppose what I'm saying is I, I would pan to somebody, I would be able to be in focus, I would defocus and then focus to make it look like I just caught it. Whereas on Abbott Elementary, we're not really doing that so much. People tend to be in focus more often, but sometimes we're making a conscious effort to make it look just caught or keep a bit of doorway alive in the shot to imply that these people are having a private moment. There's an honesty, I think, to the long lens and putting that veneer of honesty on a scene is important to me. And when like, whenever Gregory and Janine are having a quiet moment, just like whenever Jim and Pam were having a quiet moment, we would back way up and be longer on the lens so that it would look more honest, more truthful, that you could believe that, they, that, that they're having an honest conversation because they're not as aware when they're having a camera five foot away from them. And I would always do that on all, all reality I ever shot as well. It's like, if somebody's having an honest conversation, I'm going to make it look more honest by backing away from them to give them the room to really express themselves. You've got a long history of shooting things, of course, or I should say directing things that are not in the documentary style. I mean, of course, you've worked on Fargo and Nurse Jackie and Wilfred. I mean, it's like you, you've done a, a ton of different types of things. Do you have a preference, though? Is it apples and oranges? Do you like to work in, in one style more than another? I mean, to me, form follows function. And the reason that the office looked the way it looked is because we were shooting a, do a documentary in a fluorescent lit office space where there wasn't much room and there wasn't much depth. Abbott Elementary, those people look like heroes. So they're always getting a nice rimming light. And, you know, I want it to be nice and warm. Wilfred, I shot that on stills cameras because I wanted to have a 70 millimeter depth of field on vintage lenses. So the only way to do that was shoot either 70 millimeter film or shoot it on stills cameras with vintage lenses. Cause I wanted to mirror Elijah Wood's insanity with a 70 millimeter look. So to me, form follows function, you know, Fargo, the movie Fargo was shot, the longest lens they had was a 32 mil other than that opening shot. Everything I should be doing, I think I should be servicing the material, not my own, you know. I'm just not, I'm not there to just please myself. You know? Sure. I, I totally get it. I, I mean, I guess it's just preference. So I've like, you know, if you particularly like the, the mockumentary style, you've certainly made a career out of it. You've done a lot of great shows. And I remember reading about the office being like the most downloaded show in the history of the internet for a while. There was, you know, more stuff of that on YouTube and then more on streaming services. It was the number one show on one of the streaming services for a very long time. And it's not a show that people just watch once they go back and they rewatch, they rewatch with family members. They remember certain episodes. It's, it's really cultural phenomenon. And uh, uh, do you have people who you run into or stuff who continuously quote the office back to you or quote, quote some of the stuff, oh the stuff that, that you lived? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's so many fans of the office that I was in Sedona one day and there was this, uh, my wife and I were about to go on a, on a whitewater trip. And, um, there's this guy wearing a Bears, Beats, and Battlestar Galactica t-shirt. <laughs> and yeah. I, I told him, I, I normally don't, but I did. Cause I, this guy, I just, he's, I directed that episode. Anyway, he told me that this was the greatest day in his life. And <laughs> me, me, he, he was so excited about meeting me. I'm like, oh, well, what, are you, what are you actually doing in Sedona? He's just, oh, I got married yesterday. I'm like, oh man, I hope <laughs> I hope your wife doesn't hear you say it's the best yes, day of your life because you just got married. So yeah, I mean, yeah. You, it's amazing. Like I, I was shot, the show was like nine years ago and it just doesn't go away. It's, it's really cool. It certainly was like a springboard. It certainly, I, I feel like The Office launched like a new chapter in your career too. Can you talk about how, how getting The Office, how, how that came about? How did you uh, hook up with, with that <laughs> team and plotting the trajectory of your career? Just looking at IMDb, you did NASCAR 360 and then next thing basically was The Office. So uh, tell me about how the project came to be. And that's when you became a director too, as far as I can tell. It's like, that was your, you know, your first like, yep. you know, yeah, directing. So can you tell us a little bit about getting the job and then also convincing them that you were the DP here, that they should give you a shot to direct it. Yeah. Um, I, I actually directed season one of Fear Factor. I was living in Australia at the time. That's, that's actually the first thing I directed in the United States. The first narrative thing I did was, was indeed The Office. I shot, I used to do a lot of extreme sports filming. I filmed uh, seven eco challenges and a bunch of survivors and I was filming Jeremy Jones and Sean White, legendary snowboarders. And 
Ben Silberman was the executive on it. It was one of his shows and he's in the tent watching me film and I'm, I'm okay. I'm an okay skier and I, I don't have a high regard for rental camera gear. So I'm happy to see, you know, chasing people like that. So, <laughs> I know that I know this about you because of the gear that you returned from NASCAR. So, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Uh, please, um, please, please continue. Yeah. So I, you know, I was skiing with these, these, you know, and, and Ben Silverman's in the tent watching my footage. He's like, that's the guy we need for the office. I'm like, wow. I don't understand that, but <laughs> and, you know, yeah. Okay. So they, the guy who's, you know, he's happy in outdoors and extreme situations and stuck him in a fluorescent lit office. And Ben introduced me to, to Greg Daniels and Greg and I met and we just, we really hit it off and we still do. You know, I remember I, I told him, I, I think that the office is like a tofu hot dog. And he's, he said, a tofu hot dog. I'm like, yeah, it's like, we're just repackaging it. So tofu, good food, packaged like bad food. And he was, yeah, yeah, it's tofu hot dog. And, um, <laughs> So I started, you know, DPing the office that I had never worked in scripted before. And, and also, you know, I, I know I broke rules by pulling my own focus. I'm like, I didn't, I, I thought that the greatest thing I can impart as a director of photography on the office was actually my point of view and my reactions and my instincts. It's, that's why I didn't sit and DP like a tr traditional DP would. I actually wanted to operate the camera and infuse my personality onto the documentarian. And in doing so, Greg said, you're telling jokes with the camera. I'm like, well, I'm trying to, Greg. And he says, yeah, you should direct some. I'm like, okay, I'll try that. And then I remember I directed my first episode and it was season three. Everybody wanted me to succeed. Everybody was so supportive because I knew all these people, you know, we were a family. And so it was the perfect place. And also I got to go to a really great directing school. I went to the office directing school. I saw good directors do great. I saw great directors do okay. And I got to see what worked just by being there. So I felt like I, I had a really a good training because I didn't go to film school. I just um, started doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me like The Office in particular pioneered a bit of improvisational comedy from the camera. Like what you're doing is like, it's, it's improvisational comedy. Like you're adding your, you're adding your own wink and nod in there uh, through the operation, through the focus, through the zooming, uh, do, doing all this stuff. And that sort of improvisational camera comedy has now continued on to all these different sorts of projects and things. And occasionally I feel like I see it pop up in places that I wasn't expecting to see it. Like I feel like people are almost paying homage. Do you have a name for that? I, I don't know what to call it. I don't know what to call that improvisational comedy that comes from the camera. But here's the thing. I understand exactly why you wanted to contain and have all that creative control because when you have to coordinate two or three people to try to do that, I think you lose the spontaneity. Your timing's not going to be off. You, you know, not everyone has got their eye in the eyepiece and to be able to have zoom focus and your framing all kind of like to hit just like that. And it's not rehearsed because that's the other thing too. I know there's a lot of improvisation. I feel like if you don't have every circuit firing at the same time, if one person's improvising one thing, and if you're coming from the traditional cinema space where you don't know where someone's going to go or what's going to happen, you're not ready for it. In the documentary space, it's all improvised. You, you, you have no idea. You have to be prepared for anything. And so I feel like you're in a better space. Can you speak a little bit to this? Do you feel that, you know, the traditional sort of cinema rehearsed shot is the antithesis or is it, you know, is it part of the same family? I, I, I don't know. What, what's your, you, I feel like there's no one who could answer this question better than you. How would you quantify this? I think comedy is found. It's certainly found on the page, but it's, it's first and foremost, I think, I think it's really found on the deck. I mean, everybody's coming to it with a different point of view, but you know, the, when you read a script, it's like, okay, it's, it's one thing. And then you hear it read at a table read and it's something else that you didn't imagine. And then you're performing it on the day and it's something with other people on their feet and, and then it's something else. So it's caused, and then you start shooting it and it evolves. It's always an evolving thing. And I think that my job is to always get the funniest version of everything, get the most heartfelt version of everything. And I normally, I think I know what it is before I shoot it. I certainly have a, I have very, very, very de detailed plans for everything I do. Because I'm not very smart, I have to. But I do believe it's found. And I believe it's found in the, the reactions from the camera operators. And I work with some really great camera operators on Abbott Elementary who are reacting to those moments and making it feel live and real. 
And you see these relationships forming between the cameras and the characters. And like Gregory has a different relationship to the camera than Cheryl Lee does. There's also in the improv space of it, you're part of it. So you're there with them. You know that there might be something else funny and somebody's going to be really tempted to say something. You're, you're always looking around like, you know, I, I, when I operate a camera, I have one eye on the eyepiece and the other one's just eyeballing who's going to say something. Lisa Ann Walter, you can't help yourself, can you? Here it comes. Because you don't want to miss it because it's going to be great because it is this, this live um, improvisational game between the actors. It is between the cameras as well in mockumentary. And that's another layer of real fun. You know, I remember like I would, I would sometimes when I'm operating camera and Steve would say, you know, Michael Scott would say something embarrassing and you just, you don't pan off him. In fact, you might just take a step closer to him and he's eyeballing the camera and it changes, it changes him. So it changes what Michael Scott's doing. If the camera's pressuring him and I'll, I'll sometimes say that on Abbott, I'll like lean on him, lean on this character for this moment because they're feeling awkward about it. If you take a step forward, they're going to feel even more awkward and it's going to change their performance. Yeah. And that awkwardness is such a big part of the comedy. I, I feel like in that mockumentary style, the, the camera is a character, the camera is a presence. And if they're feeling awkward, then uh, you can intensify that, that awkwardness and the humor in that exact moment. But it's up to, you know, the director or the person who's operating the camera to, to make that choice at that moment. So when you're monitoring this, I assume you've got three monitors up ahead of you and you're kind of, uh, you know, you've got an A and a B and a C. And even if you know you're going to stick with the A, are you always kind of like, you know, checking out what the other cameras are doing to kind of get the, uh, the feel? Or is it more of a tool there just for the actors? So you're getting that 100% performance you know it's three-dimensional chess once you start bringing three cameras in even just to get them all inside the same space and i know you work on longer lenses which will help but still that's not an easy thing to coordinate especially when people are moving around and and action is happening yeah i mean i draw everything on an overhead and i i have to coordinate so that the cameras are shooting getting good eyes they're not shooting each other because we would never we would never put a camera where a camera couldn't be kind of the only rule we really have so that blocking is a lot trickier than just a conventional comedy or, or drama. Yeah, you're blocking camera. You're blocking not only actors, but you're blocking camera then for all that too, because you don't want to break that rule. I don't know how many people out there are even going to be conscious of that. I know you're conscious of it. I know that there's people in the industry that are conscious of it. But uh, if you do the shot reverse shot where there would be no camera there in that one shot, I applaud you. That's amazing. I think that even in that moment, I probably wouldn't be thinking it. So that, that, but that's, you know, that's a great way to sell it. I'm impressed. There's so much more that you need to do in terms of blocking a mockumentary than you do a conventional TV show. And it's funny because like interview, you know, I ultimately hire all the directors for Abbott. I'm really very aware that, that the blocking is something that is, you need to have it together. And that's when I think Abbott really pops is when we have our full cast in a room and it's quick, boom, 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 quick pops. It's how they feed off of each other. That's how the actors feed off of each other in the most dynamic and interesting way. So we need to have it together in the camera department to make sure that we're getting every bit of it. Those are my favorite scenes when everybody's together and they're just blurp it out. It feels so real and it feel, I know that the actors, they just love it. They feed off each, off each other. And there's a scene that we did on Abbott, which was um, about conspiracy theories. Everybody's got a stupid conspiracy theory and I rehearsed it and I also added a bunch of lines because they're the more conspiracies theories you can have, the funnier it's going to be. And then, you know, then I'll go through blocking it. And I remember I did that, did that scene. I, I, we read it like two, three times. And by the time we shot it, it's like, that was it. We have it. We have it worn. Did we stop? No, we kept going because there was more comedy to be mined. That's fun. That's a fun day at work. I, I imagine so. That's great because you're getting uh, you're getting something that's even beyond what was on the page. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe what every director is striving for is to exceed the written word, exceed what's what's down there, which which is great. I do think that's my job is to make everything better. Yeah. Do you ever miss anything about operating the camera or being the DP? Uh, I, mean, I may I know, or may not operate camera at times. Oh, really? OK. May or may not. Yeah. I appreciate you you leaving that up to uh, interpretation there. So uh, I do but, miss it. I do love it. And sometimes like, what I will do is I'll, I'll grab the camera and I'll show the operator what I'm thinking. Yeah. It's a director's finder, basically, then at that point. Yeah. 
are you also the showrunner of this this show? Because uh, you were saying you were hiring the directors, which made me think that maybe maybe you were. So that's typically, you know, that's what uh, most uh, producing directors do, executive producer directors do. I'm not the showrunner of the show. I run certainly aspects of the show. Quinta has final say on everything that goes on. I'm there to to serve Quinta, and there's four EPs on the show, but typically the producer director will find the directors that are going to be good for the show. Well, that, that's really good to know. It can be very opaque and not every show runs the same way. I know you worked on It's Only Sunny and I know I see a lot of different shows that are on here and I know that a lot of different shows kind of have their own system, their own way that they they do that. And yeah. uh, I feel like I can never assume as soon as I assume one thing, I'm, I'm told something else. It seems like, you know, everyone kind of has their thing, which leads me to my next question. Is there a particular genre or is there a particular type of show that you haven't worked in yet that you're itching to try or that you want to get into? Is there something that's uh, sort of you've been noodling around out there? I, I suppose the best best answer to that is, is things I wish I directed. Mm. Barry would love to direct Barry. Yeah, it's just so great. Yeah, you know, I, I love the look of Severance. Mm, Severance um, is also great. Yes, I love, yeah, love that too. I mean, those are things that I I wish I worked on, but I think also that you know that those shows only have a few directors. And but Bill Hader's a huge fan of Habit Elementary too. Well, you know, uh, similar sensibilities. I I mean, yeah, it's uh, I think that those things kind of kind of go together. Um, yeah, I can't really think of a, a genre that I have, and you know, it's straight drama I've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fargo, which is certainly, yeah, dark, you know, quirky yeah. comedy mm-hmm. character, comedic characters. That to me is a real sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great. I'm glad that you haven't been hankering for like that Western on the moon or something. So that oh, I would <laughs> love to do a Western on the moon. <laughs> I would love to do a Western. I love Westerns. I had, there was a Western. I was half hour female driven Western. I was supposed to shoot right before the pandemic. We had, all we needed to do was hook the horses up to the stagecoach and we were rolling and the pandemic killed it. Um, but I love a Western, love a Western. Randall, I think that's a wonderful place for us to leave it. I really appreciate you coming on the show and I hope that you will come back in the future sometime. Maybe talk to us some more. It was so much fun. I don't know if you can even say, but do you have already, is Abbott Elementary your foreseeable future or do you already have some other stuff in the works? So I've, I've had, you know, various development deals and first look deals. I now have a, a, a first look deal at um, Warner Brothers. It's, you know, part of Abbott Elementary. I'm going to go back to Abbott for the next two years. And, you know, I don't really know where else I'd rather be. I love everybody I work with. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of a, a sweet spot. When you find that, just enjoy. So that's where I'll be. I agree. Absolutely. Randall Einhorn, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure, Ilya. Good to see you. All right. So that was Randall Einhorn. Uh, Thanks so much for being on the show. It was great to catch up after so long, and uh, I really can't wait to see what you do next. Awesome. Awesome. So, Ben, it is bill paying time. Uh, You care to take a guess at uh, who's paying our bills this week? Uh, Concrete Truck. We're brought to you by Concrete Truck. It's that truck that's in front of you in traffic that's got the big spinny thing in the back that keeps the concrete from getting too hard. Is that our sponsor? I I love it, but no. Not our sponsor. Our sponsor is actually Airy, maker of you oh, know, incredible uh, the, equipment for the motion picture and television industry. As, that makes sense. Cinematography podcast, I get not cementimetography. <laughs> Cementitography. Yes, exactly correct. So the nice thing about Airy is that they are makers of really, really high quality stuff. And Airy, when they put their name on something, it's a big deal. That means they, it really has achieved a certain level of quality. And they now have a seven inch onboard monitor, which they partnered with Small HD to create, but their name is on it very clearly. And it's called the CCM1. And this monitor is uh, specifically designed to work with the Airy Alexa Mini LF and the Alexa 35. And it offers uh, camera control capability on the monitor using an interface that is uh, going to be similar to stuff that uh, Small HD has done in the past. So I think that for people who are already familiar with Small HD and like what they're doing and also want the robustness of of what Airy does for all their products, this might tick all the boxes. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, it's a really clever thing. Of course, you can get it from Hot 
red cameras. It's on our website. And the full details of all of the capabilities, it's a bright display. It's got multiple inputs, outputs. It's got a viewfinder connection port that's uh, designed for Aerie. So really uh, very robust. It's got the, the locating pins with the, the tie down so the monitor doesn't twist. They also have a special piece of hardware to you know help uh, adjust it one-handed. It's a very clever monitor. And for anyone who's got an Alexa 35 or an Alexa Mini LF who likes working off of an onboard monitor, this is going to be the monitor to get. So Aerie CCM1, if you're an Alexa person, uh, definitely check it out. You, you may like it. And now, short ends. So Ben, it is the short end time of the show. It's the time when we talk about our obsessions of the week. What is your obsession this week? What are, what are you all about? Uh, this is so niche. I don't know if anyone's going to follow me down this weird rabbit hole, mm-hmm. but, uh, okay. so long story, long story. Do you remember the movie Jackie Brown, the Quentin Tarantino movie, oh, Jackie course. Brown? Yeah. Yeah. Pam so, the, so the opening music of that movie, that's a Bobby Womack song called across 110th street. And I was using that very song in a theater piece I was directing uh, at this small theater as part of the Hollywood Fringe. And I started thinking about it and I was trying to figure out like where that song came from because Tarantino was obviously referencing something. And it was, in fact, a movie called Across 110th Street that came out in 1972. Hmm. And I was like, I wonder if this is an accessible movie or if it's like out of print or hard to find. And wouldn't you know, it was streaming on Tubi. And so, so uh, I checked it out and it's very interesting. It's directed by a man named Barry Shear, who he, he has a, a decent amount of credits. There wasn't that much that I had ever heard of. There was a movie called Wild in the Streets that I have heard the title of, but I have never seen it. And it was shot by a DP named Jack Priestley. And it is the grimiest, dirtiest, grittiest movie. And when I say dirty, I don't mean like dirty, like raunchy i mean like dirty like you feel like you need to take a shower while you're watching it it's just sweaty and gross and i was looking it up and it was a movie that was an early adopter of the airy bl which enabled them to make a 35 millimeter film almost entirely handheld on location so the the director he advocated for uh, this movie should be all shot on location and with the exception of a couple of scenes it was all shot on location mostly in harlem it stars by the way it stars anthony quinn and yafet koto and it is the grittiest crime thriller ever. And you look at it today and it's almost like it almost comes across like parodies of of like what a pimp would be like in a movie. In fact, the guy who plays fly guy in I'm going to get you sucker, which is a total parody of black exploitation. Oh, yeah. He is in this movie as a pimp. Oh, wow. But it's like seriously brutal. But I was mostly taken by the cinematography of it, (laughs) even though there is one shot where they're like looking in a mirror and it pans across Anthony Quinn. And I'm like, did I just see the cameraman? And I backed it up and I clearly could see the shape of a guy in the mirror holding a camera like, you know, and it was a scene with two people in it. But it's, it's like a kind of cinema we don't really see anymore. It's just a straight up crime drama about, you know, there's a, a big shootout at the beginning and it's about cops trying to track down who did it. And, you know, I, I can only assume if you were to go to all the same locations in New York City now, you'd be stumbling over, you know, art, artisanal mayonnaise shops and uh, some guy who makes, you know, bespoke uh, bicycle spokes. It's called Bespoke. Um, you know, like, uh, you got a business thing. like I, I, yeah, I'm just full of them tonight, but I mean, like it's a kind of dirty new, like a, just a filthy, gross New York that you would see in like HBO's the deuce, which I remember watching HBO's the deuce and, and thinking like, uh, Oh, they're kind of overdoing it. And then you watch this, you're like, no, they underdid it. You'll watch this movie and you'll want to go get a tetanus shot when it's over. New York City was a filthy, awful place in the early 70s. Mm. But it really, I mean, it really looks amazing. And whether you get into the movie or not as a movie, it's it functions so interestingly as a time capsule. And then obviously, uh, you know, Anthony Quinn and Yafet Kodo are such intensely wonderful actors. This is like Yafet Kodo what, six years before he did Alien? Mm. I feel like it's just a wonderful piece of research for whoever's listening. There's one person listening to us now who's (laughs) like, I have to research what it was like to be in super gross, grimy, gritty New York City in the late 60s, early 70s, and across 110th Street, which is streaming for free on Tubi, so you can just go watch it, check it out. It's something that I haven't been able to get out of my head, and uh, I've, I've been thinking about it all week, so check it out. Uh, so, Ilya, what is your uh, pet obsession of the week? 
It's the new Spider-Man animated movie. I, I you know, I've, I, I feel conflicted about this because I feel like it's such a cop out to be a fan of anything that is Marvel and superhero. But it is really freaking good. And I got to say that Phil Miller, Chris Lord, it's like I don't think these guys can do any wrong. It is so good. It's visually stunning to look at. They work in all of these different styles of, of animation. The cast, the, the voice cast is incredible. Well-written, well-produced, well-put-together, and holy crap, they, they deserve all the success that they're getting. It's, uh, you know, it's made $300 million, and it was estimated to be a $150 million budget, and it's just only been out a week. So it's like, you know, it is a monster hit worldwide right now, and uh, the, the reviews have been really promising. And I really hope that if uh, you liked the original, you know, Into the Spider-Verse, that you go watch this across the Spider-Verse, which, uh, you know, not much of a spoiler here. It's a trilogy. So there's a bit of a cliffhanger. Uh, so you're going to have to cut. They're going to get your money. You're going to get more money from you again when the third one comes out. But it's it's done so well. Clearly, they're doing stuff with preposition. So is the third one going to be around the Spider-Verse uh, through no. the Spider-Verse, it's above beyond. the Spider-Verse. It's beyond. It's beyond. Betwe <laughs> between beyond the Spider-Verse. It's beyond the Spider-Verse is what they're going to oh, call fair. it. So, yeah. So into, across, and beyond. So, oh, that, but, that, that actually, that makes total sense. Weird uh, point of trivia. My son goes to preschool with the son of uh, the editor of both of those movies. Oh, so nice. I, I, uh, I went to a birthday party at his house. That's a, awesome. A kid's birthday party. I got to say, it's, it's probably one of my favorite superhero movies now uh, i think of all i mean ever i think it's a, it's a great superhero movie and man i, I feel like i want to see it again and i i don't i almost walk out of no movie especially superhero movie saying like i want to see that again i want to see this one again i want to go see it again in the mm. theater it was totally worth it if you're on the fence about seeing it uh, this is one to go see this is oh, this gets, I, this gets I, I an enthusiastic I, two thumbs up yeah i love the first one and i feel like my son is just a hair too young for this like it's mm. not really in his yeah. uh viewing uh rotation just yet he knows a little bit about spider-man but he's five years old now yeah. so um two more so, years it'll be a different story yeah yeah yeah, sure. yeah no and i'm excited to take him to see stuff like this because I, I mean honestly i like stuff like this i think when it's done well i mean there are plenty of superhero movies that i i have seen multiple times and liked most of them were not Marvel movies, though, I have to admit, like the original Batman movie, the original Tim Burton Batman movie. Actually, most of them are Batman movies. All the Christopher, well, especially the first two Christopher Nolan Batman movies I thought were great. And also uh, that last movie, The Batman, shot by Greg Fraser, a friend of the show. I know it's three hours long. I've probably watched it four times. I, wow. I think it, I, I think it's and honestly, Greg's work is the most impressive thing. I mean, I think that everything is works in that movie, but his cinematography is just the best in that I just love it. I the the thing about all of these things, you know, like the Peter Parker story is we kind of get retold the Peter Parker story and the Bruce Wayne story for that matter over and over again. They're retold to us so many freaking times over the years that it gets kind of old and so to have a Spider-Man that I didn't know anything about, I was like, "Ooh, this is fascinating well and if you're if you really like it there's a whole lot of other spider-man stories you can get into the spider-verse is based on comics and there's a very rich and dense series that you can go down this path i know because my kids have uh, a, a oh, large number of them yes they have yeah. a lot yeah still i feel like my son's probably a couple two years young for uh, oh, no, to i'm get just saying that it's probably the target age though of people who are reading the spider-man multiverse and stuff over the last few years is probably skewing a bit older from the original comics i am going to say it's probably someone who's in their late teens or early 20s at this point i would say it's probably feels more like mm. ya writing than the original sort of comic book sort of stuff so it's definitely it's definitely matured well and the look of these movies too like the into the spider-verse the way it looked was just i'd never seen anything that had that look and it felt like it looked like every animation and its own thing all at once. Like you could see CGI animation, you could see stop motion, you could see anime, you could see kind of classic Disney hand drawn. There was like every influence was floating around in there. Yeah, it, it, it's really a lot of fun. And uh, characters like Peter Porker is just like, yeah, you know, oh, yeah. Gi giving nothing away. Spider Ham. Spider Ham. Great stuff. All right. So, uh, sir, I think that's just about going to do us for another episode. Uh, where can people mm. track you down? I know you kind of, you know, you already told people at the head of the show, but tell them again, where can people find you? They want to find you. 
Yeah, to those of you who are still listening at this point, check out uh, benrock.com. You can see some of my work. You can uh, find all my socials and reach out and say hi. Ilya, where can people find you? You can find me at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. You can check out our socials. We've got quite a few. We're working on a couple of things these days, which is fun. And uh, all kinds of uh, new gear is coming out, which we have in our real physical shop we have a real shop in burbank california and people come in every day and and visit and say hello and that sort of thing and if, if you're one of those people you can come by and, and drop by the shop and uh, there's a probably about a 25 percent chance that i'll be there you can ask for me if not you can certainly uh, see all the cool stuff that we have going on at any given time um hey you should make a you should make a virtual tour just for the apple vision pro <laughs> no I'm yeah. going to troll you yeah, with this yeah, Apple Vision Pro I, I, I can look forward to that from now until the end of time. Uh, hey, Ben, we've got to thank some people to, who made this show possible. Uh, who should we thank? Let's first thank Alana Cody, who's uh, kicking all the butt. I, I think she has both of us interviewing people separately tomorrow morning, if I'm not mistaken. That's, that That is true. I'm very excited about them both. Um, yeah, me too. I'm let's excited. let's thank uh, Ben Katz, our amazing editor, who intrepidly makes us sound like not morons week to week. Somehow manages. I was talking to uh, Bill Totolo, friend of the show, Bill Totolo, and he told me he just likes to listen to the beginning and end of the show. He skips the interviews. <laughs> really? He skips the interviews. I don't think he, he skips the interviews. I don't think he skips. Yeah, I don't think he skips the interviews. Definitely not. It's always yeah, fun that, to talk that, to him because, like, as soon as I answer the phone, he's like, "It's like I'm on your podcast." I'm like, "I'm just, I'm just some dude, man. You have my phone number." Anyway, and last but never least, let's thank Mega Hyphenate Case Alatracci, who composed every bit of music that you heard on this podcast. But he also does other stuff. He does CGI animation. He does color correction. He directs. I don't know that Case would call himself a cinematographer, but he's done quite a bit of cinematography in his day. He's got a lot of extremely specific, nuanced opinions about various cameras. Yeah, I, I appreciate those opinions. I think it's great. And I, I think that everyone should should try their hand at it. They, they might discover that they, they like something else. They like a certain aspect of yeah. filmmaking they didn't know that they uh, they didn't know they had in them. And they should do is. that, but they should also go to musicbykays.com and check out some of Kays' work and leave him any message. For, for fuck's sake, will somebody just do that once? Even offensive messages. Uh, you he could, would appreciate an, he, an offensive message. Offensive is fine. I, I mean, he kind of has it coming. <laughs> All right, Ben, I think that's going to do it for this episode. You want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.